Hello, Augusta. Hello, Georgia. And hello, wherever you are. This is Janice Allen Jackson welcoming you to the September 27th edition of Local Matters, a show designed to make you a more confident voter and a more engaged citizen. As always, today's show is brought to you as a service of my consulting firm, and that is Janice Allen Jackson and Associates, where we proudly provide services to local government and nonprofit organizations. If you haven't already, please follow the Local Matters Podcast of Georgia on Facebook. And of course, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. When you follow and subscribe, that lets us know that you support our It also means that you will get notifications when we post new episodes. Before we get to today's show, I will have to tell you that I think this is one of the best episodes of Local Matters that we have ever done. And I also need to share with you some information about an upcoming event. It's going to take place on Sunday, October 8th at 5 p.m. For all of you who are fans of the Georgia Mass Choir, they will be here in Augusta on October 8th at 5. And they'll be at the Macedonia Baptist Church located 1828 Wrightsboro Road. Tickets are $35 for balcony seats, $45 for floor seats and $100 for VIP seats. And there's a really good package with that VIP ticket. Um, to get tickets, please go to Eventbrite, E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E, and just look up the date. That is Sunday, October 8th, and you'll be able to purchase tickets from there. This is a fundraiser of the Augusta Alumni Chapter of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, and you know we give scholarships and we offer various programs for our youth. And this is how we fund those programs. So please, please, if you're a fan of Georgia Mass Choir, buy a ticket, support this effort uh, so that we can support the young people here in our community. Ladies and gentlemen, Local Matters family, today we have a very special guest. He is Reverend John K. Corr, uh, and I came to know him as Minister of Christian Education at the Good Shepherd Baptist Church in Augusta. How are you doing today, Reverend Corr? I'm doing well. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Um, I, you are the perfect guest for me to have on the show for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that, you know, the show has a Christian focus, even as we talk about civic issues and community issues. Uh, I never lose sight of the fact that, that uh, we're here to do God's work. So you fit in with that theme, number one. Number two, you are an author. And I know we have some aspiring authors in our uh, Local Matters family who would love to hear more about uh, your book, and uh, third, you have been a local, uh, a loyal follower of the Local Matters podcast since the time that you've been on Augusta. So welcome to Local Matters on this side. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And, uh, and I, I have I have uh, I have been a, an avid supporter. And uh, and I, I really understand that uh, local and state, local and state government politics makes a huge difference. Uh, and often we get really locked in on what's going on at the national level and forget that those things have a tendency to trickle up as opposed to down. That's right. That's right. You know, our tradition is that we ask our guests to first sort of set the tone by telling us a little bit about uh, themselves. So. Who is Reverend John K. Core? Reverend John K. Core is a son of Georgia, uh, born and raised in Macon, Georgia, now here in the Augusta, Richmond County area, the CSRA, I believe it's called. Uh, and so moved here to serve at the Good Shepherd Baptist Church, uh, locally, locally educated there in Bibb County, went to Central Fellowship Christian Academy. Uh, graduated from there, went to the Fort Valley State University, as we affectionately call it, earning a bachelor's in history, then commissioned into the United States Army, uh, served as a military intelligence officer for about five years, and then um, have answered the call to ministry, uh, completed a Master of Divinity at Morehouse School of Religion at the ITC, 
where ironically enough, the person that I work with, who is the senior pastor here at the Good Shepherd Baptist Church, his name is actually on my Master of Divinity because he was the chairman of the board for the school that I went to. It's just uh, it's so providential, the full circle moments that have taken place uh, for in, inside of my life. I currently am in the final year. Pray my strength. All of Local Matters podcast supporters, please, uh, as we attempt to finish the Doctor of Ministry degree there at the Truett Seminary at Baylor University. And I have the distinct privilege of hopefully being one of the final um, final mentees of one Reverend Dr. Joel Gregory. And uh, if, if you're aware of who Joel Gregory is, this is a, a seminal honor to uh, to be included inside of uh, inside of his academic history. So um, author, husband, uh, husband of one wife, uh, Dr. Sharice J. Nelson. Hopefully she's watching. Hey, baby doll. Um, we have two children, uh, one daughter who will be 16 in January. Again, need prayers, earnest prayers. Uh, Jemiah is uh, just brilliant. She is um Sophomore there at Northside High School in Warner Robins. Uh, our son Carter Seeley uh, lives in the DMV, uh, and and we are we're just we're immensely proud of both of them. They are developing into great people. Um, not only that, but uh, get an opportunity to serve in the United States Army Reserve as a military intelligence officer currently, as well as working for the state of Georgia in community supervision. So my my calendar is completely packed. I am so happy to be here with Local Matters and have an opportunity to talk about uh, the book, as well as just recently became the president of JCI3 Ministries, LLC, uh, where we illuminate the word of God, to inspire the people of God, to make an impact upon the world for God. And we don't have to do it inside the walls of the church. Excellent. Thank you for that. Now I'm going to ask you to translate. And I know in your book, you talk a lot about translators, sure. but you mentioned DMV. Please tell everybody what DMV stands for. Thank you. Uh, DMV is an area of the United States that's made up of the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia. All right. Very good. So that's where your wonderful son is. Yes, indeed. Right. Um, as you talk some, you mentioned your, your wife, who Correct. actually is shown on the book um, as almost a co-author. I don't know if you consider her a co-author, but you've got her picture uh, there and you talk about her biographical background as well. Mm -hmm. Please share a little bit more about who Dr. Nelson is. Sure thing. Uh, one, she is the very efficient editor or primary editor of, of the work. Uh, two, uh, she is a political scientist. She has a PhD in political science from Howard University, uh, Master of Public Administration from the University of District of Columbia and bachelor's in both English and history from Stillman College in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. She is only HBCU uh, educated and uh, she currently runs a consulting firm, uh, Dr. Janae Executes, uh, as well as her name is is on the front of this book for all of the wives, all the all the uh, as she says, all the generations of black women uh, who have edited and co-written and proofread all of the works that that we as black men have come up with over the course of generations. And they haven't gotten their their co-author credit. So she was like, no, my name is going on the cover of this book uh, based off of how much work I put in as well as you did. Okay, that is excellent. And there's one other item about your bio that I know you just forgot to tell people. You know, I appreciate it. Um, what other what people need to know? One important fact people need to know. While I was at the Fort Valley State University in the fall of 2002, myself and three other men became members of the single greatest fraternity in all of humanity, Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, where we learned to be, first of all, servants of all and transcend all. Excellent. Excellent. I just wanted to throw that out there because I knew you yeah. just had to overlook it. <laughs> and you know, I, I, we don't we don't feel the need to brag like some other social clubs uh, that exist. <laughs> Thanks so much. So, uh, the name of the book is when wait your turn means no turn at all all right um, 
And where did the idea come from to do this? That's a very good question. Uh, my wife and I, as my friends, one of my friends told us when we initially got married, uh, there's gonna be a lot of talking that goes on at your house. And, uh, and so inside of one of those conversations was the desire of being able to, as millennials, move forward our people and be able to do it from inside of the leadership structures of the best of our institutions black church, black college, black family, and then black politics or black community. And so uh, the concept came from being told, wait your turn. The concept came from, we've gone to the schools, we have the degree, we have the big pieces of paper, and now we return to these institutions and we're told, hey, listen, someone older, uh, less prepared, probably less educated, but has paid their dues. They have the experience uh, whereas we have the aptitude and the, the skills and the know-how. And so um, they're placed in front of us. They say, well, you know, be a part of their team, um, but don't have an opinion. Uh, we want you at the table, but we really just want you at the table uh, for the sake of saying that we have a young person at the table. You're not really going to be a part of the decision-making process nearly as much as you are just going to be a fixture. And, uh, and that's something that, uh, as we agreed, we just spent too much. We spent too much time and effort. We care too much about our people to to then allow that to be the case for so long that when they actually hand over, we talk about this baton pass in the theoretical sense that uh, on a track there are exchange zones for those four by one, four by one hundred race. That's one complete revolution around the track. There are exchange zones, and if you don't exchange the baton in those zones, then the entire team is disqualified. And so in that same way, in a real sense, we're we're stating that we're at we're nearing the end of the exchange zone in some of our institutions. And if that exchange is not made in the right amount of time, by the time the baton is passed, then the entire team is disqualified. And in a real sense, our institution will be withering on the vine by the time they get handed over uh, to millennials and Gen Z. Okay, got it, got it. Um, you start, got this idea, you committed to writing at the urging of your wonderful wife, Dr. Sharice Nelson. Yes, thank God, thank God for wives. Thank God for her. You <laughs> help me. <laughs> so, um, the whole business piece, I know most of the people whose books that I, uh, have read recently and I've had on Local Matters have been self-published. Um, mm -hmm. yours isn't. Uh, was there a whole bunch of stuff on the business side that you had to navigate to in order to get this done? Also a great question. And an emphatic, yes. Yes, there were a number of things to work through uh, that I had no I had no clue. I'm a first-time author. My wife, on the other hand, had just recently written um, a book on the CBC, the Congressional Black Caucus, 50 Years of Fighting for Equality. And so she kind of walked me through a number of these. Again, thank God for wives. I was completely lost as to how this goes. So we walked through the entirety of this process, the editing, the covers, the font. How do you want this set up? Uh, one of her students there at Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, designed the cover. Uh, he, he has, a, he has a, a, a design credit on the, on the back of the book. Uh, so this has just been incredible to support, uh, but but there's a lot of nuances um, and deadlines, uh, mostly self-imposed, not self-imposed, mostly uh, helpmate-imposed deadlines of, okay, when can you get me this chapter? And then um, originally, let me, let me just go ahead and front load this. I sent some of the single worst rough drafts of chapters to my wife. And she made chicken salad out of chicken and slop. And when I tell you the worst, I mean, huge run on sentences. It was as if I had never written anything in my entire academic life. But uh, we were able to wade through that, professionally had it edited prior to sending it to uh, Westbo. Westbo Press is a division of Thomas Nelson and Zondervan. Now, Zondervan on my end, as we say, my end and her end. The, on the academic end, Thomas Nelson is her end. On the Zondervan side is where I've read a bunch of Bibles and commentaries from Zondervan. And so 
uh, we were able to uh, we were able to kind of work through some of that process. And Westbo Press essentially is the minor leagues for Zondervan and Thomas Nelson, so that if when wait your turn means no turn at all does well, which hopefully it does. Hopefully the listeners will be interested enough to go uh, and grab a copy. But if it does well enough, then Zondervan and or Thomas Nelson would then pick it up and then begin uh, distributing it and advertising for it, marketing, et cetera. And so um, for the most part, it is it is that very thin line between having it having it self-published and having a an actual publisher kind of behind you pushing you um it is a very thin line between the two but um but but you know uh, it's just a blessing that we were able to we were able to get it done uh in a in a timely fashion uh in the midst of in the midst of also wedding planning uh as well as as well as school so there were a number there were a number of different irons in the fire as well as responsibilities here at gsbc so uh, there were a number of irons in the fire, but we were able to get it done. And uh, and I think one of the one of the key things that I know every single aspiring author and author knows is that it has to be something you're passionate about. If you don't care about the subject matter, then this book, the book, whatever it is, is going to take forever. Uh, but this was a this was a passion. This is a passion project, which I did not know um, that I did not know how deeply and impassioned I was about this particular subject until I began writing. And then the one chapter, the longest chapter in the book is the chapter I thought I had the least to say about, Black family. I didn't really think, I said, man, I'm not a counselor. I don't know anything about Black family. I'm in a Black family. And my wife, again, thank God for why she says, just start writing about, just come up with a concept. And, you know, she, she said, well, you're a preacher, pray about it. Pray about yeah. what to write and then start writing. You know, it's simple. And so that ended up being the longest chapter in the book because um, I, I, I really did get a concept for uh, the Black family being the most openly hunted uh, institution in, uh, in, all of, in all of America and, and hunted, breaking it down by, you know, Black men, Black women, Black children. And so um, that, that ended up being the the uh the the longest the longest chapter but it was the deepest dive for me inside the inside the work so um biggest takeaways for authors listening number one be be impassioned about what it is that you're writing number two set realistic deadlines on when you can get things done uh don't don't try to don't try to rush it uh be realistic and the third and third and final thing is get a professional editor get a professional editor. There is a, a professional editor. Thank God for Jaya. She did an amazing job on, uh, and again, that's another one of those. Uh, Jaya edited my wife's book on the Congressional Black Caucus and then was kind enough to do uh, do this particular work. I hope that answered your question. It does. I think that's very helpful. Um, I know that there are people out there like myself, yours truly guilty. I've been talking about writing a book for the last 12 or 13 years, and I have some notes here or there. I have not pulled it together, but I got to find a way to make this happen. And as you said, set some deadlines for myself and just 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 get it out. Um, as you compare the process of writing a book to writing a sermon, what came easier for you? <laughs> I only laugh because my wife and I, my wife and I talked about this all through the process, and she was like, "I just don't understand why this is so difficult." Like, you, you, you get to make this up. This book is like your set of ideas. You don't have to like translate it. You don't have to use a commentary. These are your thoughts. Why is this so difficult? And uh, what I came to was having having a, a skeleton like the Bible and commentaries, having a skeleton is a little bit easier than uh, than really scratching the surface on your own thoughts. Um, and those thoughts really being predicated off of some emotions, which um, as a man, I, I'm, I'm I claim to be unfamiliar with, but have come to discover uh, I'm a far more emotional person than I'd like to admit. And, and that comes across inside of inside of the book, or at least I hope it does, uh, that these are not just my thoughts. These are these are thoughts predicated off of feelings and experiences that I've had. And hopefully those hopefully uh, hopefully people get an opportunity to read and hear the heart uh, of myself and my wife inside of inside of this inside of this work. 
Excellent. I, and I think my listeners know, but it's been a while since I've had an author on. I don't recommend a book, so I don't bring the authors on unless I know for sure that it's a good one. So guys, this is a good one. Uh, you all need to read it. And we'll get into the heart of what your, your thesis is here as you discuss millennials. Um, sure. the, the role of millennials as translators. Um, please first though, describe who a millennial is. Cause you know, we got silent generation and baby boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen, Gen Z. Yeah. What, what is a millennial? Sure. Um, inside of one way to turn means no turn at all. We did our best again. Another one of these conversations that my wife and I had, she says, listen, um, if you want our parents to read this, you're going to have to give them a glossary. They need an index. They need a glossary. And then you need to have a generational glossary. So we did. And generational glossary defines millennial persons born 1981 and 1996, characterized as loyal to institutions, but based on merit, optimistic, ambitious, tech savvy, craving attention and eager to collaborate. And so those are, uh, that's a, just kind of an overview on who are, who are these people? Uh, additionally, we are the largest generation born in America. Uh, there's no way to avoid what millennials. Year to, what year to what year? Now, the, the, the glossary that we have inside the book, uh, 1981 to 1996. And so, um, yeah, it is it is just a huge it's a huge generation. It's the biggest one. It is the I mean, it's just the biggest one in all of U.S. history. And there's no way to get around us. So uh, I, I think, you know, a part of a part of the impetus for this was you're, you're probably going to come out better wrapping your arms around us uh, than trying to avoid us. And that's a good point, because as I think about changes in workplace culture, um, I know some major shifts have taken place after the pandemic, because, of course, that's reshaped everything in American life pretty much. But yeah. even before the pandemic, expectations about the work environment. I mean, I heard somebody say, you know, some people um, live to work. Others work to live. You know, that's the only reason it is because they got to make a check, you know, do something with. So. I think that shift began with millennials. When, you know, we looked at the the changes and the impact of millennials on the workplace. Mm -hmm. And um, I even had a conversation with somebody who was working in a jail setting. And we know that's a different setting unto itself. But they were saying, you know, these people born in the late 80s and early 90s, you can't do nothing with them. <laughs> you know, so those of us who are a little older have been frustrated with millennials because of those generational differences. Mm -hmm. But you're telling us that we just got to get over it, right? Because <laughs> y'all are here, you ain't going nowhere, and there's so many of you. This is, and to add to that, there are so many of us, we are not going anywhere. But more than that, we are your children and grandchildren. Like, we're your kids. So how we how we kind of ended up isn't really all together on us, right? We're 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 your kids. Uh, one of the things that we point out inside the book is I think we can't do anything with them. What's wrong with them uh, comes out of comes out of two things: one, a lack of a lack a lack of generational knowledge on our part and younger people, uh, but predicated off of you all made life. A little easier for us because that was a goal you all had. Oh man, I'm not going to do to my kids what my parents did to me, and I'm not going to make their life as hard as mine has been. And so we had it a little bit easier. And so now you're like, man, y'all expect everything to just be easy and come to you. And we're like, yeah, but in a way, you kind of set us up to believe that those were the expectations. And uh, and so I think that that ends up being a portion of that generational exchange. Okay. And I think you see that the way you framed it in the book is that is something positive. Because I mean, many times it has been framed in a negative way. It is not. It is not a bad. All that. 
and I'm I'm so glad that you said in a positive way. Let me let me be sure to say this is a positive. This is a good thing. If generation, if the boomers, if Gen X, if silent, if greatest, if those generations of black people had not been as successful as they have been, we are not even at liberty to ask the question of what's wrong with millennials? What's wrong with y'all? Right. Because we would still be in the we would still be uh, in the grips of Jim and Jane Crow in a, in a far more overt sort of way than the way it is right now. And so I think that it's painted in a negative and I think that's by design in certain circles, but that's, you know, that's a political conversation uh, to be had elsewhere. But I believe that it can be and should be spun in a positive manner, because if not for your advances, we are not in the place to even have the liberty to say, hey, couldn't we do this differently or couldn't this be better? Because if we don't have if we don't actually have the foundation to stand on, there's no way to say, hey, couldn't couldn't we put another floor on this or couldn't we redesign it? Because there's nothing to redesign. Uh, if, if there is no structure, uh, then there's nothing to, to look at and say, couldn't we rework this? Couldn't we remodel this? Couldn't this be better? Couldn't we change this? Because there wouldn't there wouldn't be anything to change, remodel or uh, revamp. It wouldn't exist. And so I think that that we don't have an issue and I, I hope we I hope we do a great job in the book of illustrating this. We as millennials don't have an issue with uh, honoring and in the back of the book we have millennial mandates and one of those millennial mandates at the very, very back, it's set up I, I'm I'm a church kid, so it's set up like the Ten Commandments. Uh, and one of the millennial mandates, one of the millennial mandates is um, let us celebrate you as we stand on your shoulders. We don't have an issue with understanding. There's no way we get to where we are without standing on the shoulders of giants from the past. Uh, it is simply we we want to have the opportunity to stand on your shoulders, to get a little higher and to be able to celebrate the things that you've done. Uh, but that's not altogether possible if uh, if if one generation won't bend, as, as King said, if, if you don't if you don't bend, they can't stand on they can't stand on you, can't stand on your back. And if you all and if older generations don't bend, we can't stand on your shoulders in order to celebrate you. As you talked about um, also in the book, the hierarchy of needs. I think what I'm hearing you say is we previous generations got you to a point where you can think broader, bolder. Um, and you can build upon the foundation in essence that has been put in place by previous generations. Now, Reverend John Core and Dr. Nelson are very, very ready to build upon that. Do you think that represents the majority of thinking though among millennials? I don't think it represents the majority of any generation, frankly. I think that when we when we talk about when we talk about any generation, there's a portion of there's a portion of every generation that's just okay with the status quo, however that whatever that looks like. They're they're looking, they're just really looking to survive uh, from day to day. And I think it is incumbent upon uh, the outliers of every generation to call out to the outliers in previous generation and call out to the outliers in the next generation, uh, so that we move the collective forward. I don't believe that everybody's set to be uh, a chief or a leader in in that in that particular way. I think every generation has those leaders, those chieftains who are set to who are set to move the group uh, by way of by way of winning the confidence of the members of that group and the the folks in the other generations that have called out to that kindred leadership ability, that kindred forward thought. And so I believe wholeheartedly that there are Gen Xers and Boomers. Uh, there are, you know, uh, the elders among us. There are also Millennials and Gen Z members who, uh, who are that 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 remnant, who are that exception. And they they say, hey, listen, we have the opportunity to collaboratively move the collective of our people forward. And I think that's one of the things that hopefully people get out of the get out of this particular work because that's that's one of the biggest emphasis. So I don't believe that the majority of millennials or the majority of any generation care enough to really want to say, hey, listen, let's invest the time 
let's invest the perseverance and the patience, the resilience that it takes to to try and move a collective forward. Uh, Reverend Cor, one of the things that you suggest, even by the title itself and then several times during the book, um, when wait your turn means no turn at all, you talk about being invited to the table uh, to discuss solutions, issues, and to, to make a better community for all of us. Um, we And we're in the point in this country and worldwide, quite frankly, where you look at problems, affordable housing, homelessness, crime, gangs, poverty. The list goes on and on of lots of problems that, that need solutions. Uh, do you think it's reasonable that folks of your generation, those born between uh, 1981, 1996, could present some solutions that maybe have not been thought of yet to those sorts of seemingly intractable issues? I do. Um, I would say I would say yes with. Um, I think our generation has some major things to lend to finding solutions. Uh, and I don't think that they're going to be like completely original ideas. I really think that they're going to be uh, modern revisions or variations of great ideas from the past uh, to solve problems that have plagued us and still plague us, uh, but not without the wisdom necessary from boomers and other generations. Uh, but that wisdom has to be given out. Um, I always say with intergenerational appreciation and uh, some reciprocity in mentorship. I think the concept that you can't tell millennials anything isn't necessarily true. Uh, it's a matter of the model of the model of mentorship and leadership has changed before in the very Greco-Roman sort of way, in the as, a, as well as Judeo-Christian sort of way. It was sit at the men, mentor's feet sit at the sensei's feet and just be glad that you're there and take all the morsels that are pouring off of his or her lips. Um, the, the model has changed in that we want a mutual reciprocity inside of mentorship. We want you to understand that we bring a value to the mentor-mentee relationship, just like we understand you bring a great value to it as well. Um, I think that that's an adjustment that older generations in some cases are unwilling to make because they don't want the model to they, they don't want the model to change one or they don't see the value in having they've been dying to be mentor to be mentor so that they could be in the in the seat of mentor like you should be listening to all that i'm saying and taking it in you shouldn't have an opinion necessarily on what i'm saying but um as we allude to in the book even our upbringing lends itself to a reciprocity in so much that our parents asked us, where do you want to go for vacation? It wasn't like, hey, kids, we're going here. We're going there. It was, hey, kids, we're going to have a family meeting. I, I'm, I'm living. I'm a living witness to this. Hey, kids, we're having a family meeting about where would you all like to go for summer vacation or what would you all like to do uh, during summer vacation? And so we, we were used to while honoring the people who are in authority also being able to have our opinions not only heard but having them be actioned on right i'll never forget my youngest sister was she couldn't have been more than she couldn't have been more than five or six and she got to decide that we were going to disney world for uh for spring break and i was just like she's the she's the youngest person in here and yet because because she was the squeaky wheel they were like, all right, well, Orlando, here we come. And so uh, that's that's the type of environment that we've been that we've been bred in, that we've grown up in. And uh, th this is one thing that I wanted to wanted to make absolutely clear. It is inside of um, it's inside of one way to turn means no turn at all. I think that this this lends itself to uh, the the question of millennials and, and and how we how we see ourselves in solving problems. Um, as a member of the millennial generation, I've lived in a world driven by innovation, making the world that we live in smaller and faster. This reality has caught many people of the silent generation and those baby boomers looking back on their lives and gazing ahead toward the future of a nation they will probably not live to enjoy. The world that they see is so very different than the world in which they came of age. 
and they ponder what the world has come to. They are peeking into that future and don't like what they see. This is happening in concert with Generation X and millennials trying to get them to loosen the reins of leadership for our hallowed institutions, buying to have them trust us enough to pass the leadership baton of our people forward. All of this knowing that we will need their wisdom and support for such a Herculean effort. For Herculean efforts such as trying to solve food deserts and racially motivated crimes, um, voting voter suppression. The 60th anniversary of the March on Washington took place and we're still in a really bad spot politically as a people. And so um, I think that the wisdom from former generations, and this is that translation piece that runs as a thread throughout the entirety of the book, is that Generation X is the bridge. They are the bridge between boomers, which is a huge generation, and millennials, a monstrous generation in and of itself. And so they're the bridge, but we are translators. Here's what that means. Our grandparents or great grandparents were silent. We unmuted them because by the time by the time we came along, we were precocious enough to ask. And they had gotten to the age where they said what they wanted to say. And they just answered our questions. There was no reservations. There was no embarrassment. They just told us what it was. Uh, one of the examples that, that we use inside the book uh, is the car is ringing and it's telling us where to go. It's just an it's just really an example of a a uh, a millennial myself, a member of the silent generation, my grandmother who was born in 1916, my father who is a boomer born in 1947, and my sister calls. My sister calls the bluetooth speakers pick up the phone call and my grandmother is shocked because she remembers cranking a car like getting in the front of it and literally using a crank for the model T and so now the car's ringing and her thing is the car is ringing and uh, to her knowledge the telephone went from being something that was completely novel uh, and an operator had to plug you in uh, to a cordless phone to a corded phone to a corded phone to a cordless phone now a cellular phone and now the car is ringing and so her understanding her situational understanding of communication that day was beginning to be altered and changed and that was a decision point for her like okay am i going to accept this or and embrace it or am i going to resist this and and just completely shun it well there's nothing she could do about it the car was literally ringing at the time right. um, my father on the other hand who worked as um, an electronic warfare mechanic on f-15 16s and 18s at robbins air force base for over 40 years um he understood gps he understood he understood the concept but to be able to see turn by turn directions in real time on the heads up display in my car, he was he was just blown away. And so in that moment, I got a chance to translate. OK, grandmother, communication has changed. The phone has gone through evolution. Dad, the way you look at a map has changed. It, it's not something you put in the glove box. Now it's on the heads up display and it will tell you in 500 feet turn right onto blah, 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 right? And so being able to do that translating work is what I believe the millennial generation has an opportunity to do in a number of arenas and a number of ways for the best of our people. Thank you for that, because that really does get to the heart of the book. Um, in the book, you talk about family. You mentioned earlier that being your longest chapter. You talk about community, which is what I want to get to at the end. Sure. But you also talk about church. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't hit on, you know, where we are. You know, you mentioned millennials. Now church attendance is low. Um, you know, as a uh, gospel minister, how does that make make you feel? So um, I have had the distinct honor and privilege, privilege and pleasure of teaching uh, a seminar, quick seminar on uh, reaching millennials and Gen Z uh, inside of both the National Baptist Convention as well as our our state convention uh, here in Georgia. And one of the biggest one of the biggest uh, kind of tenets of that has been three things. I'm Baptist. Three things. I got. I got three. I got three points. Um, the very, very first one is the very first one is that um, we care about our relationship with God. We love God. Um, 
we love the institution of church. Interestingly enough, it, it's I know it may not seem like it, but millennials, we were raised in church. Um, and this, that brings me to the second thing. The second thing is this. We just want to know that the organizations and the institutions that we are part of are having lasting impact. We don't necessarily need titles and pins for how many years of service we've been doing. We want to make sure that what we're involved in is having impact and lasting impact upon the world in which we live. Um, one of the biggest things, this is 2A, one of the biggest things that uh, we as millennials and millennials in ministry really have to focus on, we have to make church an asset again. For generations, black people have identified by church. There used to be a time where when you introduced yourself or people got to know you, one of the things that they wanted to know about you was, what church are you a member of? I know where you live, I know where you work, I know your name, who are your people? That's cool. That's all great. After that, or very close to that was, hey, what church do you go to? Who's your pastor? Right. And the 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 necess the necessity, the asset uh, view of church um, has decreased in our in our in our generation. And we want to we want to be able to, to reclaim that. And one of the ways to do that is number three. Um, I always think about this. Um, it is the five, I, always, I say five C's of reaching millennials and, and Gen Z. One, uh, we have to level. We have to level with us in empathy. Uh, love on us is the biggest thing. If we know that you care, then we care what you know. If we know that you care, then we care what you know. Um, do life with us. If you do life with us outside of church, go to a game, play cards, play games, you know, try to do the Tamiya line dance, uh, Tamiya line dance with us. You know, those sorts of things uh, end up being big. Uh, we always want to we always want to lift. You want to lift Jesus and level with people. Uh, but one of the biggest things is you don't lose currency being honest with us. You, you have to you have to be able to bring some authenticity and honesty uh, to relationship with millennials and Gen Z, because if you tell us who you were, then we're looking at who you've become. If you tell us who you were, then we're looking at who you become, because uh, one of the biggest things that we always that we always talk about, my wife and I always talk about is like there's no reason for them to act like they've never been where we've been. If you tell us how you got there, I think, I think, and this is inside the book, older generations believe you shouldn't care how the bacon is made when it's on your plate. It's on your plate. Why do you care how it was made? Our generation and younger generations, we want to know how the pig got on our plate. We want to see the gruesome nature of the factory that made this bacon that's on my plate. It's not going to stop me from eating it. I just want to know how what the process was and pulling back that curtain and bringing us into that process. It one is not going to hurt you or your witness to us. It's actually going to help because when you identify with us with empathy, we have the opportunity to really begin that intergenerational appreciation and that exchange. We get to translate because we speak Gen Z and Alpha. Those are our kids. But we also speak Boomer and Gen X and Silent because we came up. We're the last of the go outside and play generation, uh, as we as I describe in uh, chapter one. Thank God on millennial. But um we we under we have a working understanding and, and one of the things is like i said being precocious enough to unmute the silent generation i was precocious enough to ask my grandmother one sunday after church i said um grandmother i know what all right means because they taught us in school all right means mediocre uh. so every sunday almost every sunday the preacher says ain't god all right ain't he all right now i, I think i heard you say that in a sermon too <laughs> I, I have, I have, I have, but but I have based off of this gem that my grandmother, Flora Claire Robinson Brown, dropped on me. She said, "Baby, listen. He's not saying that God is a l r i g h t all right, like mediocre. 
the preacher is actually saying God is all A-L-L right, as in every way God is right, is just. And I said, well, why didn't he, why didn't anybody else tell me that? She said, well, I don't know, but you know, everybody else just knows. Um, and so I think that that's one of the chief issues. And I, I, I do not want, I do not want anybody to leave Local Matters podcast without knowing this. When wait your turn means no turn at all. JCI Three Ministries and Reverend John K. Core and Dr. Sharice J. Nelson want every single person at every single generation to understand. Some people don't understand. There is a language of church that some people just don't understand. And we think they should come in understanding it. No, they don't. We have to explain these things. Case in point. I did not know why they lined hymns. I just thought they were singing slow. Well, because it was illegal for slave, for enslaved African people to be able to read and write, there were only a few people who did know how to do it, the deacon or the reverend. So they're lining this hymn so that we as African people, because that's what we like to do, worship in community, could do that. So they say, well, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus. And they, they it's the call and response. Well, as literacy became more rampant among us, we could read the hymnal, we could read music. We've always been a musical people. And now with the words being on the screen, we have no idea why we have hymnals. We have no idea why they line hymns. We don't understand the call and response. We don't understand the celebration of the hoop uh, made, made famous inside of Black Baptist Circle. The, the hoop is really a conjure. It is gathering together the collective spirits of these people in the call and response to celebrate the concept of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we talk about it every single week is because we're trying to galvanize all of these people's spirits together, conjure them into this frenzy, so to speak. And the representative of that frenzy is the preacher who is celebrating. And that's how the, the hoop comes about. And everybody and, and younger people are like, why are you yelling at me? Everything was great until you started yelling at me. Uh, or my daughter says, you know, uh, you know, uh, that thing you do when you when you're talking and singing at the same time. Uh, and so, you know, it's concepts like that that we have to explain. We have to explain business understandings that. Black people have from previous generations that still work, right? Uh, we have to, we have to, we have to uh, put out those leadership concepts that still work, right? Those, those small grassroots organizations like SCLC and NAACP and the um, uh, National 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 Council of Negro Women, all of these grassroots organizations that are now huge, right? all began because those leadership com those leadership concepts of galvanizing people around a common goal and purpose have not been passed down. And I think that previous generations have a, a misunderstanding that they come in understanding. We don't. We may come in with smartphones and we may come in with smart mouths and we may come in with education, but we didn't come in with a working understanding of how it's been done. Um, but I but I do understand also that even with sharing that understanding intergenerationally, there has to be a divorce from some methods that don't work. And I think that there's there's some marriages to methods that older generations have, and even we may have as millennials that need to be that need to be divorced. We need to preside over divorces from methods. Okay, and I'm going to use that as a segue into your chapter on community and black citizenship. Sure. Um, you said that you know the leadership probably needs a makeover. And you ask some questions about, well, who really are our next, next generation of leaders? Where do they come from? How do we build them? And that reminded me of a couple of things, one of which I want to focus on here today because it's close to the theme of church. Um, mm -hmm. I, I always, in conversation with people, people ask me, well, what will it take to make our local governments more functional? And I would always say, you know, you've got to elect the right people and to elect the right people, you got to find the right people to run for office. So there's got to be development of a pipeline of leadership that really can take us to where we need to go. And I also thought in the context of that, that, that um, cross between church, civic engagement and political leadership, Operation Push, Reverend Jesse Jackson, Rainbow Coalition, 
Um, we know he started that as Operation Bread Basket, I think, in Chicago in the 60s mm-hmm. when he was a young youngster. You know, he right. was that next generation of leadership at that time. And um, after all of these years, I guess probably close to 50 years, I'd have to look at the, see the exact definition, it probably has been about 50 years. He has now handed over the reins of leadership to someone who is in my generation. That's Reverend Frederick Haynes of Dallas, Texas, I believe. And um, Reverend Haynes, if you've been paying attention, has been talking about sort of a social gospel for many, many years. So now he has the opportunity um, not just to pastor his church, but to also take over a national organization um, Mm -hmm. that has established a reputation for itself over the past 50 years. And I noticed, you know, Reverend Jackson was born in the early 40s, makes him silent generation. Um, I think Reverend Haynes is closer to the tail end of the baby boom. Baby boomers. Yes, ma'am. And um, there is a uh, handover. It is a generational shift from the standpoint that Reverend Haynes is close to the age of Reverend Jackson's children. Um, But uh, Reverend Haynes is still in a generation a good bit older than yours, still old enough to be your dad, probably. So do you think there is the shift? Is that enough of a shift? How do you feel about that shift? Do you think that not just in terms of Operation Push and the Rainbow Coalition, but just generally when we look at leadership for larger organizations that have a high profile um, should we be looking at boomers or is that a gradual move? I mean, how do you see that? Wow, that's a that is a that is a rich question. So uh, let me let me start at the beginning. Uh, brother in faith and fraternity, Reverend Dr. Frederick Douglass Haynes III uh, is is a is not only a, a more than capable preacher and pastor, but uh, I, I'm sure he's going to do an amazing job heading up Operation Push. He is uh, one. Uh, he's an adaptive thinker, and I don't think he is. Um, I don't think that he is so stuck on being the answer to all the questions, right? Or having the answer to all the questions, um, that he's not willing to reach into other generational pools and, and find that person. I think it's organizational dependent. Some organizations they need a gradual generational step from silent to boomer maybe even mix in Gen X and then move to millennial. Some industries are dramatic in that they would be able to move, they'd be able to move directly to um, to a millennial. You know, um, the tech world is one of those places and spaces where I think that that sort of gradual move may not even be feasible uh, based off of how much innovation millennials are bringing to the table. Um, there's, there's one excerpt you mentioned, uh, black leadership makeover. Um, I think that one of the lines in here is the future of black leadership must expand to include all the generations. Although the fight hasn't changed, the battlefield has changed. Previous generations are not prepared to fight in the land of emojis, hashtags, and reels. Yet those inside Gen X and millennials are set to lead our people and prevent us from falling victim to a more sophisticated and higher tech foe. This foe hides behind algorithms, the myth of merit and objectivity to muzzle and eventually silent our black political voice. Uh, I think that the future of black leadership inside of organizations of all sizes and kinds is gonna have to be younger, female, and inside of civic organizations, I think that it's going to have to expand because all of the parts are going to end up being very, very useful to include those whom we don't agree with their lifestyle. I think that, you know, black people inside of the LGBTQIA plus community uh, may, in, may in fact be valuable assets inside of our advancement because politically they're tied into a pool of very influential people that we just normally aren't. So inclusion. Inclusion. And I think that diversity ends up being something that we want, as my grandmother used to call it, other people. We want other people 
uh, to embrace diversity, but we as a people don't want to embrace diversity. The diversity of thought does not mean that you've lost your moral ground. Uh, it just means that you understand that there's a there's a panoramic view that needs to be had and you don't have it. You have an angle, but you don't have the 360. Got it. Got it. Are y'all going to force your way into getting your turn? <laughs> <laughs> getting to I the don't, of the book. A number, a, number of those, a number of those instances and organizations are not set up for that. They're not set up for hostile takeovers or coups. Um, I think that uh, one of the worst things that could happen is the thought that we are coming for a hostile takeover. Because that's not the, that's not the purpose. I think we want we want collaborative we want collaborative cooperation. We don't want a hostile takeover. So yes, a hostile takeover is not our aim. I think that how can I put this? Well, I like the Bible a little bit. I think that there wasn't a hostile any example of hostile takeovers hasn't worked for God's people. And I believe black people are God's people. Bottom line up front. And uh, I also believe Moses and Joshua didn't have a hostile takeover. And Joshua to the judges didn't have a hostile takeover. Anytime there's been a successful, I know America's, I know America's kind of foreign to this at this point. Anytime there's a friendly, cohesive exchange of power or transfer, <laughs> transfer of power or authority, then it works best for the organ for the organization and the collective. I believe wholeheartedly that our great our, our foreparents, our great grandparents, our grandparents, and even all of the present generations now want what's best for black people. I just think we differ on how to get there. And again, it's it's a matter of if you show us if you show us your methods, expect us to show you ours, right? You may not like them, you may not agree with them, uh, but there is there is merit in in being able to see it from someone else's point of view. That is such a great point uh, about biblical history not being filled with hostile takeovers. That is, that is, you know, the Bible in biblical days they weren't going to the nuclear option to, to <laughs> change. That that is such a good point that I had not thought of. Um, couple things uh, before we close. One, I asked this question. Is there anything else that you want our local Maris family to know about the book that you've written? So what I want every single person under the sound of my weak voice to know at whatever point in time you're hearing this, when wait your turn means no turn at all, is set to be a conversation starter. This is not a book that you are to keep to yourself. This is a book that the concepts should be spread abroad. I want parents to ask children, is this how you feel? If you're a parent of a millennial, read the book and then ask as you're reading, hey, is this how y'all think or is this how y'all feel? Uh, millennials, when you when you read it, uh, have the discussion with aunts and uncles, grandparents and parents. Um, I believe this could be beneficial for teenage readers or young college readers to be able to delve into the minds of millennials because you're going to end up working with and for us uh, inside of inside of your inside of your life and career, whatever your career may be. You're going to bump into us. That there's there's no there's no way around us. And so, I would I would ask have the conversations, be open to hearing that, hearing those pieces of information you don't like and being able to dispense transparently, I experienced this. For instance, I did not know that my grandmother had met Mary McLeod Bethune until she saw a picture of her in a, in a history book and was like, Oh, yeah, that lady came trying to raise money for this school in Daytona. She came to Macon and, you know, we cook, we cook plates and people bought plates to support her school, her, her, as she said, it. yeah, she was trying to start this little school in Daytona. And I was like, grandmother, like, that's an actual college now. That's a university. She was like, oh, well, I guess it worked, you know, so being able to, to unearth those, those things about the people that we don't hear about, right? The people that worked behind the scenes. I did not know how incredibly impactful Essie Mae McIntyre, the founding pastor of Good Shepherd was 
a black woman starting a Baptist church in 1940 is completely unheard of. Um, and, and for it to have thrived all of these years and only have had one other pastor in its entire history is also unheard of. In Baptist churches, two pastors in 83 years in a, in a black Baptist church is, it's virtually unheard of. And, uh, and so not knowing who those people are, not hearing about it, share. Um, I would also have people know that there will not, Millennials Purpose is not a hostile takeover. We are not trying to put the world and organizations and leadership and institutions into a chokehold to make you pass the baton of leadership. That's not the, that's not the end game. The end game is we want you to see our value. We want to be wanted. We start, we're star for attention. We want to be wanted. We want you to appreciate us and say, hey, listen, we know that you bring value uh, to this institution, to this, to this endeavor, to this organization. So here, you know, we're, we're trusting you. But inside of trusting you, we want to give you some words to the wise. We want to give you a heads up on what you're going to have to deal with. And we appreciate that because we don't know. Like there's a lot of things we do know, but there's some things we just don't know by way of having a lack of experience. Uh, but the very last thing that I would say about um, what I want people to get out of this is just, I want people to really hear the heart of a millennial, uh, of, well, a couple of millennials who understand how important how important our people are and how absolutely diabolical the world is going after our people. I want, I really want people to leave this, to leave this book reading experience of one way to turn means no turn at all. Understanding there is a diabolical plan after the future of black people in America and whatever generation you're in, if you care about our people, which even if you just care about your kids and your family, uh, you, you'll, you'll be able to really hear the heart of it used to be Jim and Jane Crow, and then it was redlining, and now it's gentrification, right? It's the same concept. People don't want to live near us, bottom line up front. So, you know, it, it's, it's those sorts of things. It is going after uh, HBCUs. Um, it is voter suppression, because that dictates so many other things inside of our nation. And, and so um, I really want people to leave with conversation, leave with an understanding of how much millennials actually do care, and also leave with understanding that we all have a responsibility and an opportunity uh, to do something great for the collective of all, all Black people. Excellent. Excellent. Where do people buy this book? So... You can get your copy of When Wait Your Turn Means No Turn at All. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, you can go to barnesandnoble.com. You can go to Amazon. All you have to do is type in either my last name, C-O-A-R, and it should come up because I don't believe there's any other cores writing books. But uh, you can also look for When Wait Your Turn. When Wait Your Turn Means No Turn at All uh, on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble. And if you can't find it there, please, please, please do me a big favor. Lean in, uh, jci3ministries.com, jci3ministries.com. Uh, there's a link there and you can find all kinds of, uh, weekly content, uh, from myself, uh, as well as sermon clips. And you can find a, a way to get a link for the book. Uh, but you know, stick around, look at the page, check out, you know, different random pictures and you can go to my Instagram and follow me on Instagram as well. And so, um, again, thank you so much for uh, for the opportunity to be here uh, to talk about this, this passion project. And um, and, uh, you know, thank you again. Thank you. Uh, we're going to make sure, Reverend Core, that when we post this on YouTube, that we have the links to your website and hopefully your Instagram and all that wow. stuff um, so that folks can uh, more easily. Oh, yeah. Yet to you oh, and get if, to if you can, uh, no, no issues whatsoever. Um, I'd be more than like I said, um, if you have the the website's going to take you everywhere else, LinkedIn and Instagram and all those things. So 
Excellent. Um, you all, Local Matters family, this has been Reverend John K. Core. He is a minister of Christian education at the Good Shepherd Baptist Church, and he is the author of When Wait Your Turn Meets No Turn at All. Be blessed, and thanks so much for being with us. I close with my favorite Bible verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This show is designed to contribute to each of those, giving you the power that comes with knowledge, demonstrating love for your local community, and offering you wisdom for decision-making so that you possess a sound mind when it comes to these topics. Please tune in next Wednesday at 1.30 p.m., or Thursday at 7 p.m. here on 103.7 FM or 1600 AM. Or please go to SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts at any time because local matters. <laughs>